Hey there and welcome to the Duncan Pentecostal Church podcast streaming from Vancouver Island here in Canada. And however you have found our podcast, we're so glad you're here. Before we jump into today's message, just a couple things I want to let you know. If you go to our website, www.duncanchurch.com, you're going to find a couple easy ways where you can connect with us. We have an online connect card you can fill out. Maybe let us know where you're listening from and check off the option to receive our what's happening email we send this out once a week it's a great way to stay connected with everything that's going on here at the church and even online apart from that there is a give button so if you're feeling led you can do that right online through our website you can also find us on facebook and youtube we are so glad you're tuning in and we are believing that god's going to do something special in you through today's message enjoy But we're going to continue on in the book that we've been studying, Zechariah. Uh, We've done Zechariah 1 to 2 so far, so we're going to continue into Zechariah 3. So if you want to open up your Bibles, there's some Bibles in the seatbacks in front of you. If you would like to follow along with me, I'm reading through the ESV version. But just kind of a bit of a uh, summary of what we've been talking about so far. Zechariah is a prophet to the people of Israel. Uh, during uh, when they have come back into the land of Israel. And as they're coming back into the land of Israel, he, uh, one night, as he's just praying for the people and praying uh, for what their situation is like, he, he experiences a bunch of visions in the night. God gives him visions of Israel, visions of things that have happened, things that are to come, and uh, it's actually super encouraging to the people of Israel. Uh, we've seen the restoration and also just the great abundance that they'll experience. And so we're actually just going to continue on with his fourth vision that he experiences in that evening. And this vision uh, has actually is going to be just a little bit different than the other visions that uh, he's experienced. Um, they have followed a bit of a pattern where he has seen the vision and then the angel of the Lord or an angel or someone comes and explains the vision to him. But in this vision that we are going to be reading about and studying, there actually is no explanation for it. No one comes and says, this is exactly what you're seeing. This is what this image represents. That doesn't happen in this vision. But the amazing thing about this vision is it kind of explains itself as we go through it. And it's going to actually become super obvious and revealed to us uh, as we read and, and as we study it. And so let's get into it uh, this morning. Sorry, I'm a little bit nervous today. It's been a long time since I've uh, spoken in front of people like this. And so before we uh, get into it, I'm just going to pray. I know we've prayed a lot today, but prayer is just so good. And so let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you that it's so alive and so real, that something that was written thousands of years ago can still mean so much to us today. Thank you, God, that your spirit is here in this place. Thank you, God, that that we can just trust and rely on you, that you are so faithful, that you are so wonderful. And Lord, as we study and as we read through your word and as I speak today, may it be your words that are heard. God, may it be your spirit that speaks. In your name we pray this. Amen. So Zechariah 3. I'll just read through the passage and then we're going to break it down together this morning. A vision of Joshua the high priest. 
Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the Lord clothed in filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, Let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments, and the angel of the Lord was standing by. And the angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua, Thus says the Lord of hosts, If you will walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts. And I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. Hear now, O Joshua the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are a sign. Behold, I will bring my servant the branch. For behold, on the stone that I have set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. And so what we see first in this passage is that the Lord defends, is the first, uh, first section that we see. And that's verses 1 to 2. We see, then he showed me Joshua the high priest. And this Joshua the high priest that we see uh, is not just some random character that's brought in out of nowhere. This Joshua the high priest has actually been uh, in this high priest position for a couple of months now. He's mentioned in the book of Haggai in verse 1, 1. It talks about Joshua and Zerubbabel as they were brought back into the land to rule and, and to oversee the, the work that's being done in the temple. And so this is the same Joshua that is, ru- or that is not ruling, but that is overseeing the work of the temple. He is their high priest. And so when he mentions this Joshua, the high priest, all of Israel would know who this is. It's currently their high priest that, that they have with them right now. And he's standing before the angel of the Lord. And then Satan is standing in his right hand accusing him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? This is a similar uh, picture that we see to the story of Job. Job, uh, the first chapter of Job, you see a courtroom in heaven. And in this courtroom that is in heaven, Satan comes into heaven to then accuse the children of God. He starts to point out uh, that Job is only trusting God and starts accusing God because God blesses him, because God's given him everything he has. And so then it starts this big thing going through the, the book of Job where everything's taken from him. But we see uh, this, the same tactic that Satan is constantly using against the children of God, that he is coming before trying to accuse God's children. And the reality is, as we read through this, is that we have a very real accuser. Someone who is standing, trying to point out our iniquities, trying to point out our sins, trying to point out, as it says in this passage, the filth. And he's constantly trying to accuse us. It makes me think of uh, Ephesians 6, where it talks about how our battle is not necessarily against flesh and against blood, but against principalities and powers of this world. 
that we see that it's not always against the physical that we see, but there is an accuser in the spiritual who's constantly pointing out our faults, constantly pointing out our shames, constantly pointing out our problems. And he's standing here accusing this high priest, Joshua. And does anybody know what the role of a high priest would be? Sorry? Go into the Holy of Holies and act as a representation and an intercessor for Israel. For the whole tribe of Israel, he would go in as their intercessor, as the one who speaks on their behalf, and he would, off, and he would go in wearing this breastplate that had 12 stones on it to represent the 12 tribes of Israel. And so not only is he going in to represent their people, to represent the, the house of Israel, all of Israel, he's also in this passage representing just the children of God. And so we see as he's standing before in this courtroom and he's being accused that, that that's also a representation of us, that we are also in this position, that we can stand before God and there's an accuser who's pointing out our faults, who's pointing out our problems, who's pointing out our sins that we have committed. And that's hard. I constantly think about shame and sin. Because that's what the enemy is always trying to remind us of, always trying to bring up again, to, to point out to us. And here's the thing, we have a, uh, there's a good accuser, he's good at what he does, but also the reality is that we have a great defender. We have a great Lord who is even better than what he is doing. And despite all of the grounds for real accusations, the Lord says in this moment, I rebuke you, Satan. The Lord rebukes you. He doesn't listen to these accusations. He doesn't give him an opportunity to speak these, uh, these real things, but he just says, I rebuke you. Get out of here. Go. He uses that power, uh, the power of using the Lord's name. The Lord rebuke you, Satan. And he sends him away. It reminds me of uh, the, the story in, in Jude where Michael is fighting over the body of Moses against Satan. And as Satan is there trying to fight for this body, Michael in this moment pretty much repeats this word for word and he says, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. He doesn't say, I rebuke you. He doesn't try to fight with his own power. And I think I've, I've seen many times how people try to fight these moments in their own power. These accusations to say, oh, but I've done this, and so that kind of negates what I did wrong. I've done this good work. I serve here. I've prayed here. I've done this. Or I've even heard people, when they feel like they're being attacked, say, I rebuke you, Satan. But the reality is, is we don't have the power. We sit there. If you look at this passage, Joshua just sits there. He doesn't say anything. He doesn't react in any way, but he lets God fight for him because he understands the power that God has behind him. And it makes me think of Romans 8 verse 31, where it says, if God is for us, then who can be against us? The thing is, no one can stand against. With Jesus behind us, we then fight from victory. We don't fight for victory. If, if Jesus is behind us, we don't fight from, or for, for, we fight from victory, not for victory. 
And it's that reminder that Jesus is the one who has already won. That Jesus is the one who is standing with us, not to accuse us, not to point out our shame, not to point out our faults, but to stand and rebuke the enemy. And then we see later what he does and how he responds in this moment. This does not mean, uh, when we say that God is for us, who can be against us, it doesn't mean that we won't encounter hardships in life. That's the reality, is we will encounter hardships and pain in our life. But the amazing thing is that when we go through these hardships and when we go through these hard times, that we have this God, our God, our Father with us, fighting for us. It says, too, that Joshua and describes him as a brand plucked from the fire. Other translations will say that he's like a burning stick plucked from the fire. We just recently moved into a new place, and we got a wood stove. And if you put any fire in a wood stove, I don't know if there's pyromaniacs out there who understand this, too. If you put anything inside a fire, what happens? It's completely consumed. It's completely burnt up. And that's what God is saying. Joshua, and in this moment, us and the people of Israel were like this stick in a fire, ready to be completely consumed. And that's what it said. The wages of sin are death. The wages of sin is completely consumed. But in this moment, God says, I've plucked this from the fire. I've taken this from this certain destruction, and I have saved it. As he says, is not Joshua a brand plucked from the fire? It's a rhetorical question, and it's just talking about this God who delivered his people, a God that will certainly protect and defend them against Satan's attacks, against the fire that Satan is trying to throw at them. Our God that has this authority to rebuke Satan and to pluck from the fire is actually the only one who is able to judge humanity. He's the only one who is able to look at people, look at humanity, and judge right. He is a perfect judge. And after these accusations are brought, after this rebuke takes place and Satan is cast out, we then get to see how God responds to it. In verse 3, it says, Now Joshua was standing before the, Lord, before the angel, clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, Let them put a tur- clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. So the second thing that we see after the Lord defends is we see that the Lord will cleanse. I tried to rhyme it to make it easy to remember. <laughs> we'll see how it goes. When, that's the quiz afterwards today. There's actually amazing imagery that takes place in these verses. Do you guys know what clothes represent in the Bible? Anybody? Clothes are a representation of our righteousness. It's shown throughout all of Scripture how we're clothed in righteousness, or as is how it's often described. So clothes are a representation of our righteousness. And according to Exodus 28, it's talking about the, pre- the priestly garments and how they are to be clothed as they, as they come into the holy place. Exodus 28 verse 2 talks about the priestly garments meaning to be holy, to be set apart, to be pure, to be clean. 
It's meant to add wonder and beauty to the priestly office, and they're made of fine linen, and they're woven out of a single piece of fabric, which, fun fact, Jesus' clothes were woven out of a single piece of fabric as he was crucified on the cross. A little fun fact for you guys. And so when the priests are meant to be holy and clean, coming before God, entering into the Holy of Holies, we see that Joshua is described to be wearing filthy garments in this place. And this verb, filthy, we don't fully understand. We actually make it sound nice when we say filthy garments. It sounds like he maybe rolled in grass after it got cut kind of thing. But this word, filthy garments, is only used in this passage, the verb or the Hebrew verb for this one. There's other words throughout the the Old Testament, like in Isaiah and Jeremiah, where it talks about our robes looking as filthy rags or filthy garments, which actually translates more like menstrual rags, as, as nasty as that is. But this actually puts them all to shame. This would actually even put farmer's language to shame in reality. The, the verb that Zechariah uses in this is he actually talks about him covered in excrement. He says that he's wearing poop clothes in reality. And so he takes it this step further that as he's looking at Joshua covered in filthy clothes, not only is he, is he dressed and he looks bad and he has terrible presentation, but in this moment he would smell terribly in the nostrils of God too. To say that that is how dirty, that is how filthy the people of God have become. That they are just that, uh, that far gone kind of thing. They are that filthy before God. And in this moment, Joshua stands completely helpless before God. His righteousness is covered in the most graphically and dramatic uh, portrayed way. And what can he do here? And in reality, Joshua does nothing. He stands there. He doesn't say anything. He doesn't start saying, but I did this, but I tried this, but I, I, I'm, I'm a high priest. I can't be filthy. Like, look at all that I've done for the people of Israel. He does nothing. He sits there and he accepts God's grace that's given to him as a gift. That Jesus comes in and he says, undress him. Take these filthy clothes off of him and put these, these clean, pure garments on him. Put this redemption on him. And then the amazing thing is when God takes these filthy garments off of him, he doesn't just leave them on the floor in front of him, being like, look at what you've done. Look at this mess that you've made. He doesn't make us hold it and say, smell it. Look at this mess that I'm cleaning up for you now. He doesn't just kind of hang it up somewhere in a in a like a jersey frame to be like, look at, that's where you came from. Look at how, look at how bad you are. He t- completely gets rid of it. And it reminds me of the verse in Psalm 103 when it talks about as far as the east is from the west, so far has God removed our transgressions from us. Completely removes the filth, the sin, the iniquity, these accusations are completely removed off of us who are so deserving of it. And he gives grace and he gives pure, clean garments. And then at this point, afterwards, Zechariah is just getting pumped up. He is so excited about what's happening to Joshua that all of a sudden, out of nowhere, he chimes in. 
And he's like, yeah. And I said, put a turban on his head. That's how excited he is. He's like, put a clean turban on his head. Come on. He's seeing what's taking place in Joshua, and he's just getting amped up. And the question that all of a sudden I started asking myself is, when did I get that excited to see people cleaned by God's grace? When is the last time that I got amped up like that? When is the last time that I was like, yeah, clean him, put that on him, that I, being someone who's, as Zechariah, someone's being looking into this amazing image, just as like, yeah, I'm in the place that I can talk about this. I'm in the place that I can just start chiming into this courtroom. Look at me. <laughs> but that's one thing that it just makes me think of. When is the last time that I got so excited that someone was being cleaned by the work of God? As I was reading commentaries about this, there's one that really stood out to me. And, it said, and the commentator writes this, As sin is removed by the person and the work of Jesus Christ, so the very righteousness of Christ is then placed on the believer's account. That this is accomplished by grace is demonstrated by the fact that Joshua had no part in his cleansing, but he simply receives clean garments as the believer receives the righteousness of Christ, apart from any meritory activity. And if you're like me and you don't know what meritory means, it means that he did something that actually deserves reward. So he did nothing that deserves reward. He just kind of stood there. He didn't earn it. He didn't deserve it. But this grace that God give, gave him, uh, it gives him the righteousness of Christ. It makes me think of this amazing story in John 8 where Jesus is at the temple and all of a sudden this woman who's caught in adultery is brought before him. And people come and they say, all right, Jesus, how are you going to approach this? The law says that we should stone her. That's what Moses has told us because she, we found her in adultery. How are you going to approach this, Jesus? How are you going to take care of this sinner before you? And, and they're doing this to kind of trap him to say, okay, either he says that she's free to go and that means that he has abolished the law, he's destroyed, he doesn't follow it, or he completely, uh, or, he or he stones her in that moment, which takes away his mercy. And so he's in this catch-22 in this moment. And in this scene, as Jesus is confronted with this situation, he just simply goes down and he starts writing in the dirt. And then they keep asking him, Jesus, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? And Jesus stands up and he says, all right, whoever is sinless can cast the first stone. The only person who has no sin in their life can throw the first stone in this. And at this moment, all of a sudden people start walking away. They're hit with the reality, well, I'm, I'm not sinless, so I got to walk. I can't do this. I can't do this. And the only person that's left afterwards is this woman who's on trial before the only one who is sinless, Jesus. He's the only person in this situation who has no sin. And so in this moment, he would have a right to throw a rock, to start it off. But what does Jesus do in this moment is he gives her so much grace. He sees her standing in filthy clothes filthy garments, and he says, your sin is forgiven. Give me those filthy garments. I'll get rid of those for you, and take this pure righteousness, my righteousness for you. And then he gives her the command afterwards to, to go and sin no more, to walk in my ways. And that's exactly what we see afterwards in this, this passage of Zechariah. In Zechariah 6, he continues, and the angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua, Thus says the Lord of hosts, if you will walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts, 
and I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. The commandment to follow God's ways follows after his forgiveness. We cannot be justified by God and then go off and do whatever we please. We cannot be forgiven, then just say, I'm going to go and be whoever I want and do whatever I want because that's what I want to do. But we need to start striving to stop sinning. As Jesus has said, I've forgiven you, now go and sin no more. Strive to not sin. Strive to not fall into sin. And the beautiful thing about the structure of this sentence that I, always, that I always forget about sometimes, but I always have to remind myself, is Jesus didn't say, go and become perfect, go stop sinning and walk in my ways, and then I will forgive you. But he says, I forgive you first, and then go walk in my ways, follow my commands, and sin no more. And Jesus begins this work of sanctification in our life with love, with forgiveness, with his, with his righteousness. In this passage uh, as well, we also see uh, there's two ifs and three thens given. And so he says, if you walk in my ways and if you keep my charge or perform my services. So walking in my ways is, the Bible talks about this all the time, that our, that our relationship with Jesus is like a walk with him, that we continuously move with him, beside him, walking with him through our lives, that hereafter forgiveness, we are commanded to walk with him, walk beside him, walk in his ways. We will mess up constantly, but the amazing thing is as we walk with him and him beside us, he is so faithful and just to continue to forgive us, to continue to love us. This scene actually makes me think of my dog, where my dog just loves to roll in the grossest stuff that you could ever find out in the field. I don't know what it is, but she will just run somewhere, not come back for like five minutes, and then there's, she's just like crusty and stinky and all these things, and she does it constantly. And it, of course, I'm human, so it frustrates me, but at, in those moments, I can't help but clean her. I can't help but want to take this stink off of her. I can't help but want to make her uh, clean again. And I, that just makes me think of God, how we will go off and we will roll in who knows what and become back filthy. And he will just look at us and be like, oh, you're, you're, you're so cute. I can't help but clean you off. <laughs> and he does it all out of such love and grace and because and we're his children. The, the second if that he gives us is to keep my charge, or some translations will say perform my service. And this suggests the, the faithful observance of worship that Joshua has, that Joshua and us would have to continue to walk in the commands that God has given him, in the service that God has given us the service to go, to be his disciples, to share the gospel, to love the world, all of these things that Jesus has commanded us to do to continue to keep that charge and to perform that service. So when he gives those two ifs, he then gives the thens. 
He says, if you keep this, then you will rule in my house, which suggests that Joshua's gift to exercise uh, judicial functions. And so to judge over the people of Israel. And so he says, if you do this, then you will get the right to stay in this position. If you do this, then you will have charge of my courts, is the second one. And this gives him the privilege of exercising authority in the temple which would be amazing to the people of Israel in this moment because their temple was destroyed and then they were building a new temple. And so in this moment, the fact that Joshua is getting the privilege to to exercise uh, and to keep charge of the courts is an amazing promise to the people of Israel. It's like all churches in the world are destroyed, and finally pastors are allowed to come in and say, yeah, you can continue to pastor the church. You can continue to speak the word of God. You can continue to have charge in this moment. And it's a beautiful promise that would take place. And then finally, the, the, the third then that is given is, you will have the right to access my presence. And that is an amazing promise for all people to say at that moment that you will have the opportunity to enter into the presence of God, that you'll have access to my presence would be so cool. And then it goes on further. And as I read the right to access my presence, it makes me think of the moment that Jesus died on the cross and the veil was torn in two, saying that all people could have access to God's presence. That in this moment when Joshua, who is a representation of Israel and of us, gives this access to God's presence, this right to be able to enter into that, that, like when we worship, it is beautiful because we have the right to access God's presence in that moment. We have the right to access God's presence as we walk to work, as we sit uh, in our house, as we are at work in the moment. We still have that right to access God's presence wherever, whenever we are. And so that promise, that then that he gives would be so incredible to hear. And then he continues on in the passage with verse 8. He says, Hear now, O Joshua, the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are a sign. And we knew that, that he was a representation, that he was a sign for things to come. And he says, Behold, I will bring my servant the branch. Behold, on the stone that I have set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts. And I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. So the last thing that we see now is that the Lord sends. So the Lord defends, the Lord will cleanse, and the Lord sends. Right? You guys will remember those now. The last few verses are amazing promises, both to the people of Israel and to us. That in this moment, we see that it's a, it's a confirmation, first and foremost, that Joshua and his friends are uh, representations of things to come, of representations of something else. And the passage doesn't explicitly say what they are, but we can understand as we study it. And then afterwards, we hear the promise uh, that Israel... Um, 
the promise that, that God is giving to Israel that would mean so much through this vision. There's a promise that refers to Jesus, the coming of Jesus, the, the branch as he's called in this moment. And we don't think too much about, oh yeah, the branch, that's kind of weird to hear that. But throughout the Old Testament, most, a lot of Isaiah and Jeremiah, it talks about the branch of the Lord or the branch of righteousness or the branch of David. There's so many references to the branch that is coming, which we now know is Jesus. And so he, God, in this moment, reinstates this promise that my branch that is coming, and after everything that Israel had been through, after all of the sin, after all of the the taken out of the, the promised land, put back in, following false gods, following God, falling into sin, following God's commandments, all of that after everything that they've been through, to still hear that God is keeping this promise, that he is sending the Messiah still to save these people would be so encouraging. It's kind of like that moment, after all that I've done, you're still going to be that kind. You're still going to fulfill this promise. They would start to then think of the Savior that would be coming to to heal and to save and to cleanse all people. The symbol of the branches also used to present fruitfulness, uh, to present life, uh, to to represent growth as well. And Jesus kind of used a similar picture when we look in the Gospel of John, when he talks about this idea of, I'm the vine, you're the branches, this idea of growth and life that will come. And so not only is this a symbol of the Messiah, it's also talking about the life and, and the, the, the fruit and the growth that will come through Jesus as well. The second image that we see in this is there's a branch and then there's also a stone. And many commentators have different ideas about what the stone represents, but lots of commentators will say that it is a representation of Jesus. That first it talks about him being a branch in the life and the growth that will come through him, but then also that he is also represented as a stone, the foundation, the the firmness, the rock that he would be to all people. As we look at him being the stone in this moment, it talks about these engravings that will be put onto this stone. And a lot of commentators will say that those are the wounds that Jesus would experience. The wounds that were inflicted on him that were carved into his body as he was being crucified. And then the seven eyes that are on these stones. Does anyone know what eyes represent in scripture? Wisdom, yeah, wisdom and knowledge. And so to say that this stone has seven eyes would mean that it is perfect understanding, perfect wisdom, seven being a symbol of complete, of perfection, of of wholeness. And so it is wholly wise, wholly knowledgeable, wholly understanding. And so in this moment we see, uh, as commentators say, that Jesus is a rock, that would experience affliction, that would be wholly wise, perfectly understanding. And there's actually a lot more debate on what this could mean as well. Some people say that it's a stone that is cut with seven facets on it to be a perfect gem that sits on Joshua's forehead because priests would have a stone that has carved on it um, 
I forget what's carved on it, but uh, there's a carving on it that talks about the Lord of hosts or given to the Lord of hosts, holy before the Lord kind of thing. And so some people say that it might mean that. Some people have so many other ideas of what this would mean. And so I'm saying that to say that we don't fully know. It's not fully given to us. It's not specified. But I think that that is for a purpose. So that we're not caught up on what rocks and eyes mean, but so that we really start to focus on what the last line of that sentence would be. And I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. So after all of that, after he says that I'm giving you Jesus, I'm giving you the Messiah, I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. And to say in a single day means uh, that there's such significance behind it. To say that something happens in a single day in Scripture uh, points about the power that it will have, about the power that takes place, about the, the amazing, wonderful thing that happens. And so he says, in this moment, I will remove the iniquity or the sin or the filth of this land in a single day. And what he is referring to, which we now know of, is the death of Jesus. The moment that Jesus says, it is finished, where his life ended so that ours could begin, the day that he took all of our dirty robes, all of our filth, all of our sin and put it upon himself, to give us his righteousness, to give us his pure white robes, to cover us with his blood. And it makes me think of the old hymn, what can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know, nothing but the blood of Jesus. So in this moment, as he's thinking about this, as Zechariah is writing this down, he has no idea what it really will represent. Or maybe actually he probably would know because of all like Jeremiah and Isaiah. So he's thinking about this moment, the moment that all sin is taken away from Israel. The moment that Jesus comes down and removes our filth, removes our dirty robes. I just imagine as he's writing this, the joy and the longing that he would have just to see what Jesus was going to do for the world. The gift of grace that he has given and the gift of grace that is available to us today. The gift of cleansing that is right in front of us, just like how Joshua was standing in front of God and this gift of pure robes was given to him right there. We simply do nothing except ask for it. We say, Jesus, I need this. I have filthy robes on. I need your cleansing in my life. And we let him cleanse us. And so we must come before the Lord and ask for his cleansing. He is faithful and loving to cleanse. And when you experience this cleansing, when you experience this goodness, it just makes you want to live for him. When you experience your, this love, it makes you want to walk with him. When you experience his presence, it makes you want to follow him. You get a taste of his goodness, and you just long for more. It makes me think of cinnamon buns, how you just have a taste of a cinnamon bun and you just can't help but eat the whole platter. I have a real problem with, when it comes to cinnamon buns. 
I, I just love it. And that's what it makes me think of. You taste and see how good God is, that you just long for more and want more. And the final sentence at the end of this chapter is one that I just don't want to pass over. But I, I believe that it serves a double purpose. As I was reading and as I was praying, it's, I think that it serves a double purpose to us. All commentators that I read point to it uh, representing this, this last line where it talks about um, we, you will invite your neighbor, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. All commentators will talk about how that is a representation of the great abundance and peace that we will experience from the kingdom of God. And I know that that is true. This great, uh, the, the kingdom of God is greater than we could ever understand, greater than we could ever imagine. And I know it is going to be full of peace and joy and contentment and abundance. But I also think that it has another meaning behind it. And I think that it means that once you start to taste about how good God's goodness is, his grace and his love is, that you can't help but invite people into it. That in this moment when you are standing under the vine and under the fig tree, experiencing his love and his, his abundance and his gift in your life, that you cannot help but invite your neighbors into that. You cannot help but bring people in to experience God, bring people in to share it with. And it, it, the gospel is this thing that we cannot just hoard away, that, that we just cannot stand under this great abundance and keep it to ourselves and hoard it to ourselves. But it's something that we must give out something that can only be gifted away. And here's another baking analogy for you. It makes me think of a good sourdough starter. When you're given this starter and you pour into it and experience the goodness of sourdough bread, you can't help but share it with other people. You can't help but pass around this sourdough starter with everyone else around you. And, and that's what the gospel really is. How it it's something so good that we experience, something so good that we just taste, something so good that we just cannot help but share it with everyone else around us. And so to finish off, I have two questions that I want to ask. The first is, have you experienced the cleansing power of God? Have you allowed for his love to remove the filthy robes that, that we all wear? Or is it possible that you're actually still holding on to something? Is it possible you're still holding on to some of these filthy robes? And the second question is, who has God placed in your life that you need to bring under your vine and fig tree? Who do you need to invite deeper into your life so that they can experience the goodness of God? Thanks for listening to the podcast from Duncan Pentecostal Church, located here in Duncan, British Columbia, on beautiful Vancouver Island. At DPC, we believe in teaching the whole Bible to build whole believers who can impact the whole world. For more information about us, find us online at www.duncanchurch.com or find us on Facebook and YouTube by searching Duncan Pentecostal Church. Have a great day.